Well, welcome again, everybody. Uh, we're so glad that you are here with us um, at Pomerado Christian Church. I know that you guys are grabbing your seats. And uh, as we talk about often is that Pomerado Christian Church, we want to be a place in which uh, people are able to be plugged into the people and the purpose of God that we are not perfect people here at this church, but we are people who've been changed by God to make a change in this world. And that we, all of us, all of us have been called to be witness to who God is, what he's done, and how he loves. And like our church initials, plugged in, changed by, called to, like our church initials, it's PCC. So hopefully it's easy for us to remember, and hopefully it's the way that we live out our lives individually and as a church. And so if you are new with us or haven't been with us in a while, thank you all so much for being here. We're excited to dive into week four of our uh, series called The Herald, a sign that something is about to happen. That when we think about this Christmas ser series as we're preparing for it, it's this idea that we have this newspaper theme because of the Herald, but the meaning of Herald is a, just simply, again, a sign that something is about to happen. And so as we look into the Christmas season with Advent building up to the coming, G the coming King in Jesus Christ, that it's a sign and throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the fact that a Messiah would come. And so our theme verse that we've used to kind of shape this entire series, which, by the way, will end officially tomorrow night. So if you want to see the final part of uh, the Herald series, it'll be tomorrow night at our Christmas Eve service. But the main verse that we've been using to kind of shape it all has been Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which is on the screen, and this is what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we've used that to kind of shape our series. And so the first week, we took that name Wonderful Counselor, and we dove into what that meant a little bit. And so our main point for that week was this idea that there are two ways in which Jesus serves as our counselor, but there's only one way he knows how to do it, which is wonderfully. What are the two ways he does it? Really briefly, the Old Testament idea of a, of a counselor is an advisor, someone who would come alongside the king and provide counsel. So he's our advisor. His word and, and our time in prayer with him advises us on how to live. But he's also in the New Testament, specifically 1 John 2, talks about how he's an advocate, that he's someone that stands in the gap for us, that because our sin has separated us from a good Good God, we need a perfect sacrifice and someone to advocate for us so that we might be able to bridge that gap and have eternal life with God. And Jesus is that advocate. He's the one who stands in the gap, stands to our defense, and because of his sacrifice, we are able to enter into a new relationship with God. And so there are two ways, advocate, advisor, two ways he serves as counselor, one way he knows how to do it, which is wonderfully. The next week, we looked at the idea of mighty God, and we talked about the fact that many people have questions about Jesus, but the answers are often polarizing because he's either mighty bad or mighty God. And I feel like this itch within me every time because uh, I'm like a grammar nerd and the fact that mighty bad, it just I don't like the way that it sounds, but I love the way that it sounds weird enough that we might remember it. That's the hope. And so he's either mighty bad because the word says, based on what he says, he says that he's mighty God. He claimed to be the I am as we looked at in John, in John chapter eight. And so either he's a liar, that what he says isn't true. Either he's a lunatic to use the C.S. Lewis trilemma idea, or he's mighty God. He is Lord. And so we took some time diving into his claims to be God and how it is clear that he is our mighty God. 
Last week, Pastor Dan, our youth pastor, did a great job uh, talking through the everlasting father idea. And so he first looked at everlasting in the sense of the idea of time and how we look at time, we're stressed by time, we, we, how many times we've looked at time throughout the day and how it can almost feel like that dictates how we live. We can almost make an idol out of it because we either need to be uh, more productive with our time, we need to um, always allow time to just stress this out and what needs to be done. But he talked about this idea that everlasting, that God has always been God, that it's an everlasting God, but this idea that time is a creation of a powerful God, that that's a creation. Time is creation, not the creator, but the idea of fatherhood is not a creation. Time is a creation of a powerful God. Fatherhood is not a creation. Rather, it is an innate characteristic of who God is. Because before time started the way that we know it, God is father. And for us, whether we've had a good example of a father, a bad example of a father, an ugly example of a father, or anywhere and everywhere in between, we recognize that our picture of God cannot be contained within even the best father on this earth. But instead, the best fathers on this earth are ones that model the example of our heavenly father. That Jesus had to come in time under the law in order to make sure that he fulfilled the law so that, again, we may have eternal life through his sacrifice and recognize that maybe some of us still don't believe that God could be our father, but for those of us who struggle with that, that maybe cringe at the word father because of our past, that we recognize that he is father. And our prayers that, that would revolutionize, that word would then become a beautiful thing. Because before time eternal, he's been father, is father, and wants to be your father. And so these are the past, where we've been the past three weeks. This morning, if you will join me in a word of prayer, we're going to dive into what he has for us through his word about the idea of Prince of Peace. Father, we do thank you that you are father, that we could call upon you as our Abba Father, as our daddy, as, as the one we turn to, that, that is beyond time eternal, that you've been father and you still desire that for us. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for each person that is in this room or each person that is listening online later, that you have them here for a reason, that they are prayed for, cared for, and loved before they walk into these doors, before they push play online. And I pray, God, that you would speak in an incredible way. I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful, personal, and impactful way to each and every person, and that we would all get a better understanding, a deeper, richer understanding of you, Jesus, as our Prince of Peace. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So recently, uh, my daughter started to, uh, they typically um, will watch uh, TV shows kind of like in the morning while they're getting ready. Um, um, and so recently, they typically watch cartoons, you know, like Paw Patrol or Daniel Tiger or whatever, maybe. Um, recently, there was a TV show that was on um, that maybe some of you have heard called Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. And... Um, it's the show, like if you've not seen it before, it's like a house remodel show. And so they kind of go through the whole gamut of like, there's, there's, uh, there's a reason it needs to be a fixer-upper. They have a demo, then they have a design, and then they reveal it. And they have these like, these huge pictures, if you've seen it. It's like a picture that's huge. And they like pull it apart. And so that then like the couple or the family sees the picture of how it used to be. And they pull it apart so they could see how it looks now. And it's this amazing thing. And then actually, if I was more of the extreme home makeover where it was like, move that bus. And they all like, move to the side. But it's this idea of this reveal because what's amazing to me is that my daughters are seven and three and there is something innately 
exciting for them to see something that was once broken or once uh, not what it's meant to be to then all of a sudden become something even more beautiful than it could imagine. That I believe that that thread, the idea that something that was once created for good and then receive some sort of broken down, something happened, there's a reason that it's no longer what it was meant to be, but there's something that stirs within each and every one of us to then see a restoration, a renewal, a remodel to be even more beautiful than we thought it could have been originally. It's something that stirs within us because it's the story of creation. It's the story of Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve created to be put in this place that was good. And the only thing that wasn't good in all of creation was when man was alone. And so then woman was created and then she was, everything was very good. And so women are the crown of God's creation. Women, take that and use that with your husbands. Uh, but we have this idea that woman is the crown of God's creation. And so there was, this is how it was supposed to be. That Eden with this beautiful relationship with God where he would walk among them and that they would have this closeness, this intimacy. But sin entered the world. And because sin entered the world, this this life that was how it was supposed to be was now broken. And now it's like a dilapidated house. It's a fixer-upper that we live in this creation in which we know what it could have been, but we're not quite where it needs to be. And so we're living in this place where there needs to be remodeling, renewing, and refreshing. And so there's something beautiful that stirs inside us when we see that come to fruition, even on a small scale of a house being fixer-upped. That's not bad grammar again, sorry. Um, In the midst of that happening, that it stirs within us the story of God, that we were created right relationship. We have experienced sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But we have a Savior that allows us to experience that rightness and wholeness with him again. So the main point that we talk about this morning is on the screen for you, that the peace that Jesus offers as the Prince of Peace, the peace that he offers isn't just freedom from living in brokenness. It's not just that we're removing ourselves from brokenness. It's the freedom to live in true wholeness. It's not just freedom from brokenness. It's freedom to true wholeness. And the Bible talks about this all the time, again, using the example of creation, but Even more specifically for our purposes this morning, we're going to be in the book of Mark chapter 5 verses 24 through 34. Uh, If you're new with us or you're unaware, we have Bibles that are underneath the seats in front of you. Uh, Please uh, go ahead and grab that and we're going to be on page 1563. Uh, If you brought your own Bible or if you have an app, go ahead and use that as well. But we're going to be in the story that uh, if you've been at church uh, for a decent amount of time, you may have heard the story before. It's fairly common, uh, but we want to dive into it and hopefully get a richer meaning of what it means for Jesus to be our Prince of Peace. So the main point or the, the first uh, point on your notes, there's this idea of living in brokenness, that living in brokenness, and we get a picture of a woman who is living in brokenness in this passage, that in order to reset and recalibrate what this story is, is that and it starts off in verses Matthew, or Mark 5, 21, and it talks about this Jewish synagogue leader, this leader named Jairus, who goes to Jesus and says, my daughter is dying. And so Jesus says, I will go with you. Take me to her. And as he's going there, the crowds are surrounding him and they're pushing and they're, you know, they want to get close to him. And then we see, we get introduced to this woman who is an example of someone who's living in brokenness. So let's read Mark chapter 5. Starting in verse 24 for the first couple of verses, it says this, a large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 
She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. Living in brokenness, the first one there that maybe, one, that maybe you can um, connect with is the idea of being physically broken. That this woman had a physical ailment that had been there for 12 years. One of the interesting notes in this passage is the idea that Jairus' daughter, who, who was on the edge of death, was 12 years old. So this story is one in which there's a 12-year-old who is about to die, and then there's a woman who's had 12 years of bleeding, and she's at the end of her rope. But this idea of being physically broken is that she's someone who, because of her sickness, she'd gone to doctors, and no one could heal her, that she was physically broken. And maybe for some of you, you have an ailment that is something that has just kind of been a part of your life forever. Or maybe it's something that's developed later on and your prayers have been, God, free me from this, heal me of this. I know you can heal, but why won't you heal me? And, and we have this tension that happens because we have a powerful God, but we don't always understand why and when and how he chooses to heal. So this physical healing that maybe some of us are crying out for, that we've stained our pillowcases with tears at night trying to pray through and get through these ailments. But no matter how many times we try to get healing, it, things don't get better, they grow worse. Maybe for some of us, it's not even a physical brokenness. Maybe for some of us in your notes, it's a spiritual brokenness, that we're spiritually broken, that we've come to the end of our rope like this woman has, where she's tried to get different doctors and she's tried to find healing. She's tried to go these different routes, but in the end, again, things don't get better, they just grow worse. And for us, maybe it's this idea that We've tried to find our healing, a spiritual gap in our lives because we were meant for this right relationship with God. Because sin happened, there is a brokenness, but then there's a gap between us and God. And we try to bridge that gap with so many different things. Again, maybe it's, it's trying to make the right amount of money. Maybe it's right, trying to get the right neighborhood and the right house with the right amount of square footage. Maybe it's the idea of getting the right promotion and getting the right position because you think that'll bring respect and identity and, and affirm all the things that I've worked hard on or whatever it may be that we have these, this idea that there's another way that can fill the gap between me and God. There's another way that can fill the emptiness that I feel. That maybe I wouldn't say it out loud. Maybe I wouldn't tell people about it. But there's an emptiness when we feel like if I only made a certain amount of money and then the money comes and it's in our bank accounts and then we say, it's not enough. I, I, I don't feel whole. Maybe for some of us, it's we, got, we want that position, we want that promotion, we want that whatever it may be, and we get that position, we get that promotion, and we recognize that sometimes being at the top isn't what you expect it to be, and sometimes it ends up being lonelier than you ever could have thought. So then that desire, that goal is no longer able to help bridge that gap, help us to find that hope. So we go through these different ways in which we try to find this healing for this ache in our spirit, in our soul. And as much as we go to the doctors, to use this verbiage, that the world might tell us are the ones that will help us, things don't get better. They grow worse. And we still struggle being at the end of our rope. 
Maybe for some of you, you're not physically broken or spiritually broken right now, but maybe you're still suffering the ramifications of, and your notes a broken home. That because of the childhood that you had or, or just your circumstances growing up, that there's brokenness there. And you're still learning what it means to have a father verbiage that's someone who loves you or a mother who is nurturing. Maybe you're still in the midst of a brokenness within siblings or a gap there. Or maybe it's something where we just have a moment in which we look back at home and especially in the holidays, we want to stress and look back for good memories. But sometimes what happens are just empty thoughts and brokenness because of relationships or because of things like that. And there's a broken home dynamic. And even for those of us who were blessed with great parents and those sorts of things, it's, they're still not perfect. There's still wounds that we carry with us. And so maybe they come from a broken home. And the reason we bring this up specifically for this woman is the fact that because she was bleeding for 12 years, the, the Levitical law and the Old Testament law would say that because she was bleeding, she was therefore unclean. And because she was unclean, she had to be removed from her home and she had to be set apart in a separate place altogether. So imagine for 12 years not being able to be with your family. Imagine for 12 years that anytime you try to greet your family with a hug, they said, I can't because you're unclean. I can't touch you because then I'm going to become unclean. And this broken home, this division of relationship is something that would be permeating out of the heartache of this woman. That yes, she wanted to be physically healed and yes, she wanted to be spiritually healed, but she also wanted to have relationship again and not be left and cast aside as someone who was dirty or, or other or less than. She wanted to be made whole. So we're going to take, looking at this woman's story, we're going, to, we're going to dive into that. But before we go too much further into this part, I need to take a few moments to look back into some of the Old Testament ideas, a couple, two important or significant words and two important beliefs, which will be in your notes in just a moment. But we need to go and dive into a few things to give us further context of what this looks like in this story and how Jesus fulfills being the Prince of Peace. And so with that being said, there's the, the thing that I have under here. Um, it's something that I uh, purchased recently, and it's a prayer shawl. So a prayer shawl was something that we see based on Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 40, which say this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Verse 40, then you will remember to obey all my commands, will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And the reason we have to look back at this is because it gives us the context that will help us understand a little bit more about what's happening in this story. So with this prayer shawl, this is something in which uh, because of that Levitical law that we just read about would be something that Jewish uh, men especially would be able, would wear and they would have with them all the time. In fact, if you see pictures of, of Jewish people still, or if you've been to, to Jerusalem, you'd recognize that people will still be holding this and that they would still have this. And so the first two, one of the first two words that we're going to look at is the word that we see in Numbers 15 that talks about the tassels. So the tassels are the tzitzit. T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. 
Yeah, tzitzit, um, and then Hebrew. And this acted in your notes. It acted as a reminder to obey God and his commands. That it was something that as you were wearing this all the time and as you were, would hold this and you would remember the word of God. That remember that Jewish people, that especially the men, would learn the entire Old Testament the more they progressed as they got older. But all of them would know the entire, they would memorize the entire Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books. And so on these tassels, there's five little knots to remind of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they would have that as a reminder to obey the commands that were in God's word. Now, this is something that for many for us, maybe for those of us, we may, might wear a cross. Like the cross might be, we wear that as a reminder that we have a relationship with God. Maybe we put on our phone, there's a screenshot or a, or a lock screen that has a verse, maybe whatever it might be, but something that we might tangibly put in front of us as a reminder, a visual reminder that we are going to obey and follow God's commands. And so that would be the idea of these tzitzit, which are these tassels right here at the end of the garment. Then the second word we have for you is the word corners, which is the word kanaf in the Hebrew. The kanaf would be this whole section right here, this corner right here. And it could also be translated as skirt, edge, fringe, or wing. So in your notes, you could fill in wing. This gives us a little bit further context into what happens in 1 Samuel 24, in which there's a story that uh, Saul is inside a cave and David comes up and instead of killing him like the people wanted, David just cut off the kanaf, cut off the corner of Saul's prayer shawl. And to you and to me, that's just like, oh man, he ruined his clothes. But what this meant was the fact that David was showing him and proving to him that you have forgotten to obey the commands of God. That you are no longer living according to the law and you are leading the people astray. Your relationship with God has fallen short. And so by David doing that, it meant more than just ruining his clothes and bringing it to a tailor. It was much deeper than that. So this idea that this corners, when they would hold it out like this, like I said, it can be translated skirt, edge, fringe, or can you picture this with me? If I hold it out like this, can you picture how it would remind you of the translation of the word wing? Right? This idea of just being able to have a wing underneath the wings. Now, just a side note about this. Um, we see in Matthew 6 when it talks about Jesus tells us to go pray. And this, if you were in a moment of praying, what you would do is you would cover yourself up like this. You would pray like this. And this would be called your prayer closet. So we talk about go into your prayer closet and pray. It wasn't go into a special room inside your house that you've made just for this purpose. It was the idea of wherever you are, you could go and pray. Wherever you are, you could go and hide from the distraction and go into your prayer closet, which was underneath the shawl that you would wear. Now, those are the two significant words, tassels, tzitzit, corners, kanaf. Now, there's two important beliefs that stemmed from or that were then developed out of this idea. The first one is that, on your notes, that if someone were to grab the kanaf of another's robe, the person wearing the robe would have to obey that request. So this idea that if someone were to grab onto this, and, and as you're walking, some please help me, they would hold on to the edge of the clothes, the edge of the garment, the kanaf of the prayer shawl. And that person who was the one who had, had their robe grabbed would be asked or, or expected to obey the request of the person that made that request there. But then, because of that, or rather, we see that in Matthew 14, verse 34 through 36, 
When it says, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the kanaf of his shawl, the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. That we see that this is not just, oh, it's not just a matter of desperation. I'm so desperate, I just want to touch the head, the edge of his cloak. That is part of it. But it comes with a richer cultural understanding of the idea that by doing so, that that person, that Jesus would be expected to obey my request. So, so heal my son, heal my daughter, heal my family, heal the sickness and grabbing on would be expected that Jesus would then be someone that would obey that request. That was the first important belief that stemmed. The second one in your notes talks about how the belief would come that the Messiah, when the Messiah came, that there would be healing under his wings. There'd be healing under his kanaf. We see this in Malachi 4, 2 verse A. This, or this is where the, the, the context came. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And this became a, ma- a messianic prophecy, an idea that the true Messiah would come and healing would be under his wings. And we see that this is where the woman came from this idea. This is where her faith was, was shown and revealed in this story. There's a version of this par- a parallel passage in Matthew 9. And in Matthew 9, verse 20 through 22, it says, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the kanaf of his cloak, the edge of his cloak. Because she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. So Jesus turned and saw her take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. That Jesus pulls her aside, not just because she was desperate and reached out to him, She pulls her aside because he recognizes that she recognized he's the Messiah. So we see this earlier. We sang um, a heart the herald angels sing. I believe it's either the third or the fourth verse says this. Hail the heaven born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. It's pointing to how Jesus is the prince of peace that fulfills the Malachi 4.2 prophecy. And so we see this idea here that when Jesus pulls, calls her out and and pulls her aside, that there's true wholeness in the next part of your notes, true wholeness that he has in store for her. So we're going to pick it back up in verse Mark 5, verse 30. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out for him, from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That this idea of being freed from your suffering can be translated by, according to Archibald Thomas Robertson, can be translated as be whole, Be made whole of thy plague. Be made whole from that which has plagued you. And so when he says, go in peace, it's not just the simple peace be with you and go. It's hearkening back to this idea of shalom. That shalom means more than just peace in the Hebrew understanding. In fact, let's look at a definition provided by Cornelius Plantinga in a book that says, not the way it's supposed to be, a breviary of sin. To name just rolls off your tongue. Um, We call it peace 
but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So when he says, go in peace, when he talk, we talk about Jesus as the prince of peace, it's hearkening back to this idea of shalom. It's hearkening back to this idea that the way things were supposed to be was that we were supposed to stay in the Garden of Eden with a perfect relationship with God who would walk among us. And sin was never supposed to be something that divided us from him. And so the way things were supposed to be is to have this flourishing, this delight, or this wholeness that goes beyond just removing ourselves from a difficult circumstance or having peace in the midst of conflict as in a ceasefire kind of peace, but it's this idea of having true wholeness, that that which has been broken would be made new, that that relationship or those circumstances that have caused physical, spiritual, or a broken home would be made whole again. So for your notes, the first point there underneath the true wholeness is this idea of being physically whole. That the woman was then immediately received healing of the bleeding that had happened for 12 years just by touching the kanaf of Jesus' cloak. And she recognized it right away that it happened. So this is, there's this physical healing. That she's a physical, physically made whole. But then the next one is spiritually whole. That she would become, that we can become spiritually whole. That Warren Wearsby puts it this way. By the time Jesus finished speaking to her, she experienced something more than physical healing. He called her daughter and sent her on away with a benediction of peace. To quote, be made whole meant much more than receiving mere physical healing. Jesus had given her spiritual healing as well. That that brokenness in which she, she recognized that she was separated from a good God, the, rec the thing that we experience when we recognize we are separated from a good God and we try to fill that spiritual hole in our hearts with various things. There's a moment in which surrender happens in which we see that we can only be spiritually made whole through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That no matter the position we have, the money we have, or where we live, or what people think of us, none of that will give us the identity in God. None of that will give us true hope and none of that will provide the wholeness that you and I seek from the brokenness of our nature. It'll always fall short. It'll always not be enough, which is why thanks be to God that Jesus never falls short and that he is enough. So then we look at this idea of physically whole. There might be healing that happens physically, spiritually whole, that there's a story in the gospel of Luke in which Jesus heals 10 lepers and nine of them go off and they've been physically healed. Only one comes back to him to thank him. And in that example, that shows us the fact that nine might be healed, but only one was made truly whole. Because it wasn't just about the physical removal of brokenness. It wasn't just about a physical healing. It was a spiritual wholeness, a shalom of recognizing that the only reason I'm healed is because of the Prince of Peace who saved me and healed me. Only that one leper understood it. And so the last point we have in your notes is this idea of we have physically whole, spiritually whole, and then a whole new home. A whole new home because now after that healing takes place, this woman was able to go back to her home after 12 years. She was able to have an embrace 
that she never wouldn't have been able to have, that she was able to, to be able to hold and, and, and be close to family members that she would have been ostracized from for 12 years and home would have been something that was meant to be good, then broken because of this and then has been remade, remodeled and refreshed better than they, she ever could have imagined. Now I mentioned, I started off this morning sharing about the Fixer Upper uh, show and, and how the girls love it, how there's something innate within us that loves when something has been made, that has been once created for good, has been broken, and then is made new because it's the story of the gospel. But with that being said, I want to introduce you through, through uh, some pictures here of some, a woman that I went to school with at Azusa Pacific University. Her name's Janelle. That's her husband, Alan, and her son, Josiah, there. So Janelle and Alan, uh, Janelle has been, um, she for a long time was a pastor at a church, um, worked with college young adults. Alan has worked with Fellowship of Christian Athletes for, for quite a while. And so they are just incredible couple. To be honest, I, I don't talk to them often. It's one of those where I kind of follow them on Facebook and, and kind of have seen their story, which I'm about to share with you. And, and, I, and I reached out, had a friend reach out, and they, they gave the okay for me to share the story. Um, so what happened was that Using the home analogy we talked about earlier, that Alan and Janelle purchased a home in Upland, which is my former hometown, and uh, they bought a, ho a house in Upland, and they wanted to do some, just some remodeling a little bit. And what happened was is that they started the remodel, and, and when they started it, they had to kind of um, clear out the kitchen, and they wanted to redo the kitchen, so they took all, they gutted the kitchen, put it in their garage, and Alan came back a little bit later, and they found out that all of his stuff had been stolen that someone had come in and taken all of those things. And in the midst of that, they found out that they were excited. They found out that they were pregnant. And so now the remodel ended up becoming an expansion. And so as, as contracting and how stuff works, right, it always becomes more and it's never done. And so this idea of, it then became an expansion where they needed to add more things and, and make this work and have this happen. But in the midst of that, after about the six week mark of finding out they were pregnant, Janelle, it faced a huge health crisis that they found out that she had a traumatic brain injury 14 years earlier and the traumatic brain injury coupled with whatever was going on ended up getting to the point where in her words she would collapse she would lose the ability to talk the ability to feel she would she would get to a point where she couldn't go outside and and as we see in the next picture it was it was a circumstance of life or death for her but also for the unborn baby in her womb. And so there's this moment of just complete prayer and, and trying to find out because now they're not even worried about this broken house. They're not even worried about that because they have to take care of Janelle and their health and her health. And so coming after that, what they saw, the next picture, good news is that the baby was born and so they're a family of four. And so that, that's good, but they're still saddled with the idea of what do we do with our home? Because the home is still disrepair. All the finances are now gone to health. I mean, there's so many things going on that it becomes this, this burden, this weight that they have. And what we find out is that they ended up being selected to be on one of these home makeover shows. So if you'll show just the first picture, this is just the front room. This is the bits in there they were trying to be able to rebuild and they're trying to be able to have this be something that was their home but six months after they thought that they were gonna be able to get started all these different things started coming health things stolen I mean all this stuff was was weighing down on them and it just became this 
this moment in which home became a place of stress. And for Janelle, she was unable to be, go out and about because even going to a trip like Target, just getting out of the house would trigger seizures or trigger reactions to her. So she needed a place of calm. She needed a place of rest. She needed a place of peace, which if any of you have ever done any house remodeling, rest and peace is not what takes place. And so what happened was that they had this moment where they, they got called on to be on this show. And how the home had been the thing that they thought was going to be their dreams. Brokenness had taken place. But there's something that stirs within us when we see that what was once made for good, then there's brokenness, and then it's made new. It speaks to our hearts because it's the story of creation. And so we see the final picture of that same room redone. And then recognizing that it wasn't just the fact that there's drywall and electrical fixtures. It's not just the fact that there's couches and a place to, to sit. It's not just the fact that the home had been remade. What it did is that it remade the idea of home being a place of peace again. And so for her, she shared on Facebook, you know, as I'm still following her story, that you know she's she's doing better than she has. She's had been able to do her physical um, uh, physical therapy and things like that, and, and they're seeing improvement. Now, is it all because there's a new home? No. But does having a new home help to provide the peace through which there can be true healing? It helps. And so, what we see here again is just an example. That whenever we have something that was meant to be good, and then there's brokenness, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's a broken home, whenever we have those things and we need someone to make us new, we need a remodel, a refresh, and a renewal, that the only way that we can bridge the gap from our brokenness to the renewal is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to put it, make this trite or sound easy, because it's not easy to follow Jesus. It's not easy to have Things, we think that things are going to work out. Oh, I give my life to the Lord. And I'm going to get the money and the position and the friends and everything. Ask anyone who's given their lives to the Lord and ask them if every step of the way has been easy. The answer will be no. Why? Because Jesus didn't have an easy path here. And if we're to be like Christ, it means that we're going to face struggles and ups and downs and brokenness. But then we'll experience true wholeness, that he is the Prince of Peace, came not just that we could have peace away from brokenness, but that he gave us true peace that would allow us to live towards and move towards true wholeness. And so for you this morning, for all of us this morning, maybe you're in a point where you're thinking that I've tried to reach out and I've tried to make these requests to God, but no matter how often I've done it, it just feels like nothing's happening. And it feels like my requests are just falling on deaf ears. And you say that if I just reach out and grab the kanaf, that, that there, he has to obey my request. But the truth of the matter is, is that we don't always understand why, how, and when God heals. And, and to be honest, a lot of heartache and anxiety happens when we try to figure that out. And so it's tough to be in that place of physical ailments and needing healing. And so I don't try to make it sound trite, but it's leaning into God in the midst of that brokenness, recognizing that he can make wholeness out of that. For spiritually broken, recognize that maybe, maybe you're still in a place where you haven't surrendered your life. Maybe you're in a place where you've given your life, but you have one foot in and one foot out. Maybe 
What we need to remember is the fact that the same arms outstretched that caused this to look like wings is the same arms outstretched with Jesus on the cross that we find healing under his wings, that we find healing at the foot at the feet of Jesus, under the cross, healing under his wings, yes, physically, but also spiritually, so that we can experience a new home in him, that home where in which God is Father, and that we have brothers and sisters that teach us and show us what it can look like to have a family of God. Not that it's perfect, not because we are not perfect, but we are people who have been changed by God to make a change in this world. And that might mean that it starts to change with us and emanates from out there to reach other people in our schools, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods. But healing comes under the wings of the Messiah. Healing comes when we recognize that we surrender and we experience what home can truly be like, not because it's reflected in our homes of our families, but it's reflected in the family of God. And for all of us, we want that hope. We want that flourishing. We want that delight. We want things to go back the way they were meant to be. The only way that can happen is with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not that everything's going to be fixed right away, but that we would be made whole, that we would have shalom, wholeness, delight, and peace. And then that would be the mark of our lives. Not the hectic, the chaos, or the trying to find after other ways to find healing but only through the Messiah, who's the son of righteousness, that light and love and all he brings. He's the Messiah, that healing comes from underneath his wings. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you that you are here in this place, and that you are with whoever's watching, or sorry, listening online as well. God, I pray that you would encourage us this morning that for those of us who've not made a, well, those of us who are struggling with a physical ailment, Lord, that you would minister to us and be the God of comfort to us, that you could provide instant healing, and we pray for that. You could also use healing through doctors and wisdom of those who are trained in this. We pray for physical healing, Lord, but we also recognize that physical healing isn't the end of the healing that we need, and we need true wholeness through a right relationship with you, Lord, through Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom through which we can experience true wholeness. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person that you would work in them and through them and Walk alongside them in whatever it is that they're facing. I pray, Lord, that you would be wonderful counselor to them, that you would be mighty God to them, that you would be everlasting father to them, and that you would be the prince of shalom, the prince of delight, flourishing, wholeness, and the prince of peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.